Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we have a very special guest, Mr. Matt Finch, and he's the creator of Swords and Wizardry, of Osric, the quick primer on old school gaming. Some of us might call him the father of the old school renaissance, and he's here to talk about his new Swords and Wizardry complete revised edition that's now on Kickstarter. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, glad to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about all that stuff and even more today on Wandering DMs. Yeah. Uh, before we get into it, I'll just remind all our viewers that uh, at the end of the show, we will go into our uh, live chat with our with our patrons uh, on our private Discord server. If you'd like to join in on that, uh, you can do so. Just visit our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash wandering DMs. Uh, pledge at any tier, and you'll have access to the private chat afterwards. Yeah, we'll look for it. And maybe we'll even get Matt to jump in today to, to join I'm, us in the in the live chat afterwards. I'm I'm planning on it. I did that last time I was on the show, so we love that. We love it when you when you get a chance to do that. So I so Matt, I, I have been really uh we okay, we love swords and wizardry, right? So as among, you know, the flagship retro clones and you know, really to some extent, you came up with the idea. Right. Matt Finch came up with the idea of a retro clone of using the content that uh, Wizards of the Coast had put out for uh, D&D under the uh, the open game license and, and repurposing it so that we could all keep playing the uh, easy to learn, fast paced old school games that we all really love. Um, and, you know, when we were I'll just, as a little side note, when we were scheduling what day we could have you on. We were thinking about maybe today, maybe next week. And I'm really glad you got to join us today because next week was going to be a scheduling problem because of Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be at a convention actually in this time slot playing a game of Swords and Wizardry. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Just hook so up your mic and go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Maybe that's next week's play. episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we like Swords and Wizardry a lot. We're... You can't hear anybody else at the table. Just Paul. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're really glad to see that you're you've got a this complete revised edition on Kickstarter and it's doing so well. Um, it recently when I checked in, it recently uh, kicked over a hundred thousand in um, uh, submissions. There, you've got a you've got a um, you got a stretch goal at 105,000 for referee for a referee screen, and I'm really personally hoping that you hit that mark. So hopefully we can get our our viewers if they if they're not on the Kickstarter yet, get on there so that we all have a very nice official Swords and Wizards referee screen, among other things. Well, it'll um, be inserts. You, it's going to be a, a, mm -hmm. a PDF with inserts for one of the, uh, the the company that I know that does it is Hammerdog, but there are probably others as well. The 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 screen that you put the inserts into. Um, which probably works better because we've got, you know, like the initiative, one of the things we're putting in there is the initiative system. Well, there are alternate initiative systems. So doing it as a PDF, let somebody print out the particular page that has the initiative system that they're using on it. Um, so it, it works just with sort of, there are so many options that it does tend to work better with inserts. Totally agreed. I, I totally agreed with 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 old school gamers. There's going to be a lot of different opinions, and I mean, I feel like that's one of the nice things about original D and D's. It kind of came as a toolkit to customize and make your own. Does that does that feel right to you? Oh yeah, and I, well, I mean, partly it was definitely a toolkit. You know, Gary and Tim Cask and other people talk. You know, have, have talked about that aspect to it, but also I think partly it's an accidental toolkit because since it was the first RPG they were playing. They thought that some things that they could refer to the old chainmail wargaming rules and have that work without really realizing that it's changed the qualitative nature of the game so that those are not actually necessarily the best rules. Um, here looking at like, you know, parry initiative, some of the things that they had there. So, so partly it's a, a design toolbox and partly it's an accidental toolbox. 
but there's no doubting the toolbox nature of original Dungeons and Dragons. Anybody who's ever, you know, looked through the original books becomes instantly aware, uh, you know, that it's something that's not, you know, 100%, um, you know, lockstep. This is how you do this, 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 and this. You know, let's, okay, let's dig into that more because we on our Discord server and our patrons, we constantly come back to these issues, like specifically initiative. And uh -huh. for people that don't know, original the original D&D books uh, didn't have any initiative in them. <laughs> like Matt say, it just referred back to the chainmail game, which itself had two systems, had version one and version two. And you could, so right off the bat, it was already <laughs> referring to outside two systems to begin with. So Matt, when you talk about a couple different initiative systems, like what are the ones that you are thinking about that people would probably be picking between? Well, there's uh, there there are several in there. There's one which is the most commonly used, I think, and I'm not really sure where it comes from. It's probably from one of the basic sets, but uh, but not the Holmes basic set. Um, is is just the roll one d six initiative uh, per side and then go, um, which is the simplest, uh, uh, and that's what we put in as the default for Swords and Wizardry. Um, mm -hmm. Is that one then there is the Holmes initiative system which is heavily dexterity based and on that one you roll dexterity for the monsters and then just everybody goes yeah. in dexterity order um and then there is uh, there was in eldritch wizardry uh, eventually an official initiative system um that was written by rob Kuntz, and that right. one uh, it, that it, it sort of presages what's going to happen in advanced dnd um, it's that it's relatively complex, um, but we've put in something that we streamlined it a little bit and put in something that works in that way um, as, as one of the options. And um, uh, so, you know, we've, so we've got homes, we've got the sides, we've got the Robkin system, and there's one other, I think, that, that's in there. Um, and there's a quick little blurb about, you know, if you're using this system, this is what it does, this system, this is what it does. Um, and I think that they work different. They work better in different circumstances. Actually, I mean, I when I'm running a convention game with a lot of players, I tend to use the Holmes system, um, which does involve going around the table twice. But the thing is, since you're skipping, you know, from over several people, it keeps the whole group engaged because you're moving around the table much more quickly than when you're doing the side by side, uh, you know, side versus side initiative system. Um, that with a small group tends to be the quicker and more, you know, that that's usually how I do it. If I'm playing a smaller group, you know, five or six people. So. That's, I love that observation. And it's, it's one that I think I was blind to for a long time about scaling the rule set to your situation or number of players. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that distinction is home game, home campaign versus convention one-off, but mm -hmm. A lot of the time, it's just it's just number of players, and I know for me, um, I think I was really dogmatic about having a collar for a long time, and then a mm -hmm. couple of years back, it finally the the light bulb finally went off and went. If I have a small number of players, I kind of don't need a collar, like four or yeah. five people. Maybe I don't. Once it gets up to like seven, eight, nine, ten, then it actually does help to have the the union rep, as I as I usually think about it. So, yeah. I, so for me, that's like the threshold that I do that in particular. I think that's a great point. I thought it was a great point too. <laughs> Matt, I'm I'm curious uh, when we when when you I'm curious sort of like where you drew the line when you were when you're going through Swords and Wizardry in um, sort of allowing a lot of different options like you do here with initiative versus kind of picking a horse and being opinionated. Are there, are there cases where you, you found yourself just leaning in and saying, you know what, I just, I need something standard here? Or do you try to offer as many options as possible? Well, usually what I did was, you know, and again, the, the biggest example being with the initiative system was that I did want to choose a default um, because there are, there are two ways that people um, encounter the game. They're either somebody who's been playing for years and years and years and has played uh, any of the pre-2000 versions of Dungeons & Dragons, and they're using it mainly as a reference tool. They probably still haven't actually played OD&D since you know, only a fairly small number of people actually did play it back in the day, other than as a reference. You know, If you came in in my group, like 77, 78, we used it as a reference, but we already had at least one advanced book that we were using. Um, so uh, 
I, I think that people who've played the pre-2000 versions of D&D tend to come to Swords and Wizardry looking for a reference tool of what's different, what's the same, but they don't need very much guidance. And so those folks are um, very interested usually in the idea of, you know, here are the various alternatives and let me pick them. But the other person who's coming to it is somebody who is either from um, such a later edition that the terrain is kind of foreign, or they're actually learning to play an RPG for the first time. Um, and for them, you really need to have a, here is the pathway for you to get started. You know, here is an official rule for you um, so that you can say to yourself, okay, I've, I've, I've got the rules. And then they only build into house rules once they're a little bit familiar with what's the basic default version of the game. So usually what I tried to do was to say, okay, this is the default. And then here are the various... Uh, you know, possible house rules that, that you can use with that default once you're comfortable with it. So, um, you know, the the one thing that I did um, at least make it appear that I was taking a stand on uh, was with the saving throw uh, thing, but that was for legal reasons. Because the thing is that um, when you're doing a retro clone, the, the basic theory of it is you've got a bunch of licensed terms, so you're not going to get into trouble with the interactions between terms like hit points, magic missile, saving throw, so on and so forth. And then you redefine those terms um, so that they match with the old rules, but not with the language of the old rules. And that that way you can assemble something that is um, you know, fair use in terms of copyright, either under the license for the terms plus the fair use uh for the definitions of the terms um and uh um so on the saving throw thing saving throws had already moved on to uh, they had moved away from the different categories that were used pre-2000 by the time that they were ever licensed so there is no um term protection for um saving throw categories and also formats and tables can be copyrighted as well. So there's that additional twist in there that even if something is a game mechanic and is not copyrightable, the formatting that was used for it can be. And saving throw categories fall into both of those two areas, potential, you know, potential creative use mm -hmm. if it's combined with lots and lots of other terms and the, the table formatting on the thing. So on that one, I definitely said, look, this is the single saving throw category here is a historical reference to how you could use it with the original game um, and then once you've moved into commentary about something um, you're into the quoting rules uh, under copyright mm -hmm. so there that was in there as an option um, but there i did basically say look the, the official rule is this single saving throw approach that we used unfortunately i i think um that's been very, it was very much adopted by the people who actually played OD&D because to them, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. I think people who are going back for the read as written experience of OD&D, uh, you know, may generally prefer to use the saving throw categories, but it's really, it works. It's a fairly similar match in terms of how things end up working at the table. So. Cool. So that there's an and example. for viewers that, that that don't know what we're talking about in um, <clears throat> pre two thousand, as as uh, William in the chat is calling it twentieth century D anD D, um, the saving throws <laughs> Ouch, table based hurts. on. At least yeah, you're not right? saying know, right? At least you're, at well, least you're not saying nineteen hundreds D anD D. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Thank you, William. That's that's how it really teen hundreds D anD D. Um, the. Um, <laughs> Uh, the in in, a, in original D and D, uh, the categories were based. The saving throw categories were based on the type of attack. So you'd make a saving throw versus spells or breath weapon or stone or something like that. And then, uh, as of third edition, they switched it to the type of ability that the character had. So nowadays, I think in fifth, it's you're either making a dexterity save or a wisdom save or something like that. Um, so that was a fairly big adjustment in how that whole mechanic worked. Um, interesting, interesting point about that. It, it did, it did know, definitely have an interaction with the law in terms of, of, of copyright. And to be clear, and we, and we, were, we, we just checked in on this right before the, the show started. So Matt, you have a law degree and you practice not in intellectual property, but you practice for a couple of years. So I think that, you know, you're a, 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 just an invaluable resource um for again you know realizing that we could use these things to establish retro clones like swords and wizardry so 
when 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 Matt talks about those things, I personally sit up and listen. Well, which is, you know, which is useful, but keep in mind also that I was not a intellectual property lawyer. And so there is a whole range of skills and expertise and the ability to make guesses about things um, where there's another category of lawyer who are much, much better at it than I am. So, you know, if we end up talking about, uh, you know, licensing or the orc license or any of that stuff or any of the uh, Wizards of the Coast trying to revoke the OGL, uh, there are better lawyers to be listening to. I'm probably better than a layman, but I'm certainly not in the top tier of, of being able to make predictions about what courts would do with copyright copyright law because it's a pretty specialized area. I, I don't think we want to dive too deep into the licensing stuff. We did plenty of episodes of that early this year. Uh, folks okay. can certainly go back and look at our older episodes and, and dig into that. Um, but I am kind of curious, uh, just, just to touch on it a little bit, uh, Matt, of sort of like, did, did any of that stuff affect swords and wizardry? What licenses swords and wizardry on? Uh, it ended up not having an effect. When we were in the middle of it, we were thinking, okay, well, we may have to try and strip out all of the references. And, you know, that would involve, you know, probably changing spell names, blah, blah, blah. And I won't go in, I won't go down that rabbit hole since it's mm -hmm. a deep rabbit hole and it's not actually what's happening at this point in time. Right. Since Wizards has dropped the, uh, uh, the 5.1 SRD, at least, into the Creative Commons license. What we're doing for Swords and Wizardry, the inbound license is going to be the Creative Commons grant. Because as I was talking about, when you're working with a retroclone, the most important thing for you to have um, is simply a list of the basic terms, magic missile saving throw, hit points, things like that. Um, and then you redefine those uh, you know, using fair use. Um, so the most important thing is the list. Um, some people may have copied some text directly from an earlier version of the SRD, and people and in that case they're going to have to go in and uh, you know either wait for the older SRD to get dropped into the Creative Commons license or to go in and change that. We're not really in that situation because Swords and Wizardry was um, really it was written very very carefully from scratch, and also there wasn't a whole lot that was in the fifth edition SRD that we were going to be using verbatim anyway. So, mm -hmm. uh, cause we were going further back than that. Um, so we're using the creative commons license and then for our outbound license, because we want to have an open game, uh, uh, license for people to use. We're still waiting to see, uh, the final version of the orc license drop. Um, we have also written a, uh, an OGL clone, type license that would also create that separate category of um, intellectual property that is open for people to use, even if they're not using it directly from Mythmere Games. Um, because you have a simpler form of license, like the one with Mork Borg and the one with Shadow Dark, where you're allowed to use the stuff, but then another publisher can't necessarily use stuff from another publisher. It's only direct from the person who owns the, the top level intellectual property. And so we were trying to get something that was a little bit more um, usable for the fan base, um, because I think most of the people who use the who use actual open game content. Publishers tend to avoid using other publishers' open game content for the most part. Um, and there's a convention of, you know, checking and asking, you know, can I do this? Um, but fans, you know, so people who are publishing, uh, you know, just an adventure that they want to put out on the internet um, or a monster that they want to put out on the internet, you know, or maybe something that they're going to sell on drive through but it's not really a business kind of thing. Um, that, uh, group of people in the OSR and in 5th edition um, make much more use of open game content. Um, and so, uh, you know, we wanted to have that ability out there um, for the micro publishers and the fan publishers and the, you know, and, and that group, uh, which I think is really the most important group. I, the, the people who are doing that kind of thing are, are more important, I think, than the publishers at least unless you're talking at a level like fifth edition or paizo um the publishers you're just here to, i assume to like individuals who are maybe writing modules or scenarios and want to release it on you know drive through or, or or someplace like that or even just put it out on facebook you know with you know mm -hmm. here's okay. a here's a link to my you know module that i've written um the and i you, you see less of that nowadays than you did uh you know even five years ago just really because 
I think social media has changed things a lot. It used to be that, you know, on uh, G plus people had a lot of branching access to multiple mm. systems and so on. But I, I also suspect that eventually we're going to see a resurgence on that when the ability to do something like that causes some sort of social media thing to get going. Hang on a second. That's my phone. That's a very busy guy. We respect that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's fantastic that um, uh, that that source of imagery is uh, and that Matt is is thinking specifically here about what kind of licenses for that for that uh, individual user. Um, certainly, in my experience, and I've written some stuff that I've published on Drive Through RPG um, and seen a lot of a lot of folks sort of struggle with. I want to write a D and D scenario and I want to release it for you know all versions of D and D. And almost always that ends up with sort of like a, a, a two-prong approach of here's the version for current modern D&D &D, and here's one for classic D&D. &D. Um, and I would say like nine times out of 10, it seems to me like the classic D&D &D branch ends up focusing on source and wizardry over any other uh, system. Well, I think recently there's a lot of people who are using um, old school essentials for for that, for the, the sort of, uh, you know, benchmark old school uh type of thing. I, I do think it was Swords and Wizardry for many years. Um, we'll see where it where it ends up. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Swords and Wizardry, uh, certainly now that we're put in morale rules, um, is functionally uh, compatible with anything that's basic expert um, out there. So, I, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, 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 we may either get close, we may get closer to a general OSR version. Um, it may be that, you know, OSE people know that Swords and Wizardry is something they can use. Might be the other way around. Swords and Wizardry people know that OSE stuff is usable. But um, one of the reasons for putting the morale rules into this edition, um, because it's really not, it's, it's very ambiguous whether they are a feature of OD&D. I mean, they almost certainly were um, in, in some respect, but they're not technically in there um, unless you read, again, back to the reference to Chainmail. Um, but by going ahead and putting those as an optional system in Swords and Wizardry, I think that takes a step toward a sort of general OSR compatible system because now people who are using a Swords and Wizardry uh, product to play BX, they have that very important morale rule in there. I think it's optional in BX too, but you know, I think most people who play BX use it. Um, you know, you've got that, so you're, you're not feeling that there's something missing from the swords and wizardry thing and then vice versa uh you know if it does play a role an important role in a bx uh or an ose product you know somebody who's using swords and wizardry will, will have the you know it'll have meaning because it's also in it's in both systems and the numbers work out um so uh so that's where we are on that i think we're gonna it's it's, it's just a matter of waiting and seeing what the osr does uh you know I, I'm glad you bring this up because I actually wanted to chat with you for a while about the morale issue because, um, you know, I focus a lot on, um, I don't know, retro clone war gaming, I guess. Uh, so I've got my 15-year-old uh, uh, classic D&D war gaming rules called Book of War. And we, we still stream uh, playtests for hopefully an upcoming edition of that uh, Thursday nights on the channel here. And so we were playing on Thursday and um really that you know the game always pivots on morale the war game fundamentally pivots on the morale and when i was a kid i was actually kind of a little bit pissed off about that because i felt i wasn't getting full use of my army that i had brought to the table but nowadays i really like the fact that it brings a, a large amount of drama and surprise to the game and makes it kind of go faster actually you don't have to literally bleed out every single hit point that's that's in the engagement. So I actually really really like it. But you have this problem, like you're like you're saying. Technically, I mean, to my knowledge, in um, original D and D Volume One, it does say that NPCs are going to have to make morale rolls. But then it refers you to really three different systems. You could do this or this I or this because it refers you to to um, the reaction table in original D&D. &D. You, you could use that and it's unclear how you do it. 
or you could go to Chainmail, which itself has two different systems. It's got the post melee morale system, and then it also has the morale instability from excess casualties table. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw you, I saw you mentioning this on your Kickstarter update and on Facebook the other day. Um, you know, I personally like so personally when I run OD and D, <coughs> I use the reaction table that's in OD and D for my morale roles. I was seeing, uh, you know, early player Mike Mornard claiming that you really ought to use the instability due to excess casualties and be making analogies all the time between this monster type and this troop type, whether it's light foot or heavy foot or, or whatever like that. The, the one thing that, that, that caught my eye is you saying on Facebook that the original D&D morale system was uh, roll low to be good, but, I, but all, the, all three systems that I would think to look at, they're all roll high to be good. So what do you, what do you consider to be the, the, the original D&D morale system that was roll low to be good? Uh, it was the, okay, so <clears throat> we're, looking, we're talking about the table where uh, if you take tw some percentage of your casualties, um, then you had a number which for mounted knights was four and for levied troops, I think, was eight. Um, and you were trying to roll above <clears throat> your morale number on 2d6. And yep. if you rolled... Uh, and so there you were trying to roll... Uh, because there's 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 also a mental flip flop whether you're talking about your own people or whether you're talking about monsters. So there, yeah. uh, to to specify, rolling uh, rolling low meant that your unit might break. Right. In BX rolling high is what might cause your unit to break because the intuitively your morale number the higher it gets mm -hmm. the stronger you are. Um, so that's why there's the difference between the OD&D method and the BX method. And so we flipped it right. to follow the BX method um, because right. there are, I think, very, very few people who, um, you know, use the, because there are none as written. You know, you've, you've certainly got the, the folks like Michael Mornard who are making the analogies back and forth. Um, but, you know, you could equally well argue monsters aren't supposed to make morale checks in OD&D. The only people who are meant, who are supposed to make morale checks are the, the players and their hirelings because there are rules for those, but there's nothing for monsters. Um, so you can, you can extrapolate chain mail in two different ways there. Um, so I don't think it's, it's significant to uh you know anything that's a, a published resource out there whereas you get enormous benefit by keeping the same numbers and the same probabilities but just flipping the die roll and then all of a sudden you have something that is compatible with bx and ose uh, which are very very popular osr systems and so by making that that one flip which didn't even change the probabilities all that it did was change mm -hmm. Whether you're trying to roll high or roll low, um, you you suddenly you know lock in a whole new level of of compatibility inside the OSR, um, which to me was worth taking that little step away from being a retro clone and toward being something that is you know not exactly a retro clone, um, which is a decision I've made you know here there and everywhere throughout Swords and Wizardry and until uh, Dungeons and Dragons gets into the public domain. Um, you know, we're not going to have a perfect, a perfect retro clone. So, you know, issues of compatibility are, are important, um, especially for the, the survival of the OSR type approach to things uh, in the post OGL era, because I think a lot of people are going to migrate away from the OGL. Uh, I think we are going to see more fragmentation of rule sets as, as we go on. And so, you know, keeping as much of a level of uh, compatibility and community as I can you, with 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 my role, which isn't a very big role, but it's to a certain degree because I'm helping establish, you know, one of the benchmarks that people will use for that um, was to to try and do that. So, but that's the that's the difference is is that in in OD and D rolling um, rolling low was what you wanted to do in order for your troops not to break, whereas rolling the other way around in, in BX. You're, I, I think I think you just momentarily misspoke. I I, I think um, uh, was it's it, rolling I, high. Being confused rolling, that's right. Rolling there high. You no, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> rolling rolling high <laughs> was what you wanted to do in OD and D. Mm -hmm. 
whereas you want to roll low in in, in BX. Which makes sense, but the confusing part is that in OD&D, a, a low score is good, whereas in BX, a, right. a high score is good. Yeah. Um, now, I will point out that, because here's the table that we're talking about. So Matt did know the exact numbers in, in the chainmail uh, morale table here from memory, right? So it is, in fact, four for the armored knights at the bottom and eight for the peasants at the top. So he, from, from recollection, Matt knew the exact numbers in that table we're talking about. <laughs> and I will point out, and I will point out one other thing for the, for the OD&D experts uh, in the audience is that, yes, there is some abstraction in the tables that we're using because, uh, and this is, you know, because it was a war game, but um, there was also a different freak, a different point at which you would have to make your morale checks. Levied troops had to check at something like 25% morale, whereas mounted uh, knights only had to check at like 50% losses. So you would actually have more uh, checks being made, uh, you know, whereas in BX, it's all simplified down to you when you take your first casualty, uh, you make a morale check. And then when you've taken 50% casualty, you make a morale check. And I think, again, it makes sense to have that standardized when it's a role-playing game. Um, whereas in a war game, Part of the interest is those different types of troops that you've got out there. This is a unit of mounted mounted knights. So they should be a lot different from levied troops. Whereas in a an RPG, you know, everyone's pretty much you know either adventurer, hireling, or monster. So, and again, Matt had the exact numbers on those things. And the other thing I would say is that um, you know a table like that doesn't scale super well. Is I don't want a table with every single monster in the game with i guess i guess you'd have to list those two statistics for every single monster in order to expand on that so having a mechanic that's a bit smoother um for example ju just having the checks be made at the same percent of casualties removes a statistic that you need to document for every single monster in the game so that's a big uh that's a big efficiency game i think Yeah, I, I love I the consideration that you think so deeply, Matt, about, you know, developing the community of the OSR in a way that's comp cross compatible and supports other players and publishers with some kind of quasi consensus. Um, so do you think that like factionalism and a whole lot of fracturing of different rule sets is not good for the old school community? Uh... I mean, it's 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 good when you have, you know, more options to play interesting games, and people are coming up with, um, you know, new approaches to it. You know, that's a good thing. Um, and I think, on the other hand, you know, factionalization, um, you know, certainly when it leads to one fan base, you know, insulting and you know fans of another game is is not good. Um, I don't think it's a necessarily a plus or a minus in any sort of lockstep but you know there's a cloud of things that goes on um i think in the osr so that's um you know i i think that the more that we um accept the high level of compatibility among the osr games as a positive uh you know i think the more that somebody who's using um i don't know you know mork borg um the, the people who are playing OD&D will look over at a, a really cool Mort Borg scenario and say, you know, hey, I can make this work. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and use that. It multiplies the, the resources that are out there. Um, so that's why I think it's beneficial because I think, you know, the, the fans, you know, somebody who's just got a really cool adventure, they want as large an audience as possible, you know, who will read that adventure and, you know, comment on it online and say, you know, this is, this is good. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the broader, the perceived compatibility, the better, I, I think, because a lot of times, you know, somebody will make a really cool monster. They'll put it up on the net. They'll get, you know, two comments. And then a week later, they'll put up a picture of their cat and get 150 comments back. And, no. you know, <laughs> and that just sort of sucks. So, you know, that, that's why I try and keep all that stuff in mind. Sure. Matt, I wanted I wanted to ask you about uh, the add-ons in the in the Kickstarter. Um, so there, there, you have two uh, adventure scenarios uh, listed here as add-ons. Um, you've got the Legacy of Black Lagoon, 
which is a, an introductory level uh, once every adventure. Um, and you've got the Doom of Malakar, which says it's a uh, solo adventure for Swords and Wizardry. And I want to specifically ask about the latter there, because solo adventures are a specific sucker point for me. Um, yeah. So um, when, when you're talking about solo adventure, uh, are we talking about a one DM, one player game? Or are we talking about like a, 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 a single person with like maybe choose your own adventure style? Um, it's a single person. You know, a single book? person. Choose your own adventure style thing written by Ben Barsh, who has uh, has written more than one of these before, and they're very very good. Um, and it you know uses the Swords and Wizardry uh, rules to do the resolutions and so on and so forth. But it's also very much like a choose your own adventure type of thing. So which I think a lot of people would love to see. Um, and so there's uh, you know that I think is going to be pretty popular. We should also add the. Um, uh, Luke Gygax's uh, Adventures from o World of Ocarim 2 onto the story page. We did an update about that, but Luke contacted us and asked, you know, hey, can you guys do a conversion uh, of, of this stuff for Swords and Wizardry? Because I think he's only doing it in 5th edition. And right at the moment, we have to do the conversions because we're the only people who actually know what the final rules look like until we get this out to people. <laughs> so we're kind of stuck <laughs> with that request. We couldn't be like, oh, do it yourself, Luke. All oh, right, you don't have the book yet. Shoot, <laughs> oh, you got me. <laughs> so, uh, so, the, so uh, you know, his his stuff will, will also be available in Swords and Wizardry. Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic! Awesome. And, and is that is that a um, if I if someone new is coming into pledge on the Kickstarter, is that a, a a thing that they can add on right there and there, or is it is it coming later? No, it, it, it'll it'll be something that they can add on. Uh, right away, because we've got it in the add-ons. So that's why I was saying, oh, shoot, yeah, we really need to put that into the story portion of the thing listed with the other uh, things, because you can get it both from us um, or from Luke's Kickstarter. Um, and hmm. uh, there's a slightly, the price is the same, but on his, it has, it's also being used more of a, as a sort of a stretch goal type of thing. You know, the, depending on the tier, you get it free with his, and just because hmm. they're, the two Kickstarters are organized a little differently. Um, and uh, you know, I definitely encourage people to go and, and uh, you know pledge to Luke's Kickstarter. It's not a a thing, but it is the same price on the two of them because um, there'll be some people who are backing one, not the other. So, um, so yeah, there's that. We're building up. There, there are also a lot of other people who are talking about doing uh, things for Swords and Wizardry. Uh, you know, once the rules are out, other publishers. But um, I'm not going to leak that because that's their sort of announcement to make when they do it. So. Cool, cool. We had Luke on just, you know, on the show here just before Gary Con, of course. We touched on that just briefly. And I'm well, I'm really happy to hear that there will be a version with with of his stuff with old school rules. So that's really great to hear, actually. You know, so the 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 goal that we're currently aiming for is the inserts for a referee screen, uh, which which your Kickstarter is just within shooting distance of. So hopefully we'll see that unlocked. Pretty soon, and I saw you, and that's still a work in progress. And I saw you asking on Facebook what what people might think to be the most useful stuff on there. So I noticed that your your plans, your current plans, are the the basic matrices that you get in classic D and D. So the ex the current expectation would be you'd have character attacks and monster attacks table and saving throw table and turning undead. And I will say that in my you know, my house-ruled version of original D&D that I call OED, or original edition Delta, those are all the things that I get rid of, right? I, I get rid of all the table-based mechanics. And I do have, and I, I, I have a website, I call it Target 20, where everything is just a simple formula. And it's generally, generally something like D20 plus your level, and you're looking for a target of 20. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, you know, John Peterson, after I came, after I sort of interpolated that, I guess, um, John Peterson came up with an old document from the draft of, of uh, d and before they made the tables, where that was actually the kernel of the idea of, of basically your attacks are, your, your, I guess your, your chance on a d20 is 20 minus your level mm. for a fighting man. Do you ever... 
and 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 you're you know committed to uh, how the game looked originally. Do you ever wish that you could move away from the tables that take up so much space and have a, a non-table based mechanic for that kind of stuff? I actually like tables because I'm one of the people who doesn't like doing math in my head. I, so you know, there so there's the the immediate. You know, there are there are probably two groups, of pe two schools of thought on that, and you and I are in the opposite schools of thought. I like to just see the thing um, because I don't really mind getting lost, you know, for a second and looking something up on a table. Um, but um, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, I always end up in the situation of having to remind myself, you know, you, you know, Finch, you're not writing your own game here. This is, you know, it's a retro clone. It's got to have all of the aspects of a retro clone. Um, so I, you know, every once in a while, I'm tempted to just go off and, you know, wing it. And I'm like, all right, so here are some rules for, you know, jousting while flying, you know, sort mm -hmm. of thing. And I'm like, no, nope, you know, because, uh, <laughs> you know, so that, that is something that requires constant attention that I, I'm not, you know, getting a wild hair and starting to write my own game instead of Swords and Wizardry. So. Well put. I feel, I feel that. I feel that a lot, um, actually. Um, yeah, I feel it's, it's, it's good. It's good to hear that you, you think about those things, um, so deeply. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of got me wondering, I'm curious, Matt, when you're running, like, what is the resource that you personally have at the table? Uh, is it like a highly dog-eared and annotated version of the original text or of swords and wizardry, or is it, uh, as you showed before, just right out of your brain because you've got everything memorized? No, it's it's I I I use a, a copy of Swords and Wizardry, which you know I, I think as much as anybody loves the original O D and D books, I think everyone agrees that as a reference tool, uh, they're not the best because of the way that things are mentioned in various different books here and there. So I mean, I definitely use Swords and Wizardry uh, to, to to streamline the rule stuff. I make a lot of things up out of my head when I'm running a game, um, which I think you know you got your whole spectrum of dms from the people who like to have everything written down so that they're referring to it you know e either because they don't like having to come up with something on the fly or because they want to be fair um you know all the way over to people who will um if something sounds cool you know okay um there is a black hole devouring the earth and you know you're at the edge <laughs> of it what do you do um yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I, uh, I, these days I spend, um, I, like I've been focusing on the original D&D spells a lot lately, and I've been running some uh, scenario sessions where everybody's, it's some player versus player sessions where everybody has a high level wizard, <laughs> and we get to kind of uh, punch on, you know, all the high level spells that maybe aren't seen or tested as much as other stuff. And so I continually wind up, you know, running into these corner cases even playing the game for for 45 years now of these ridiculous corner cases for the magical or ability interactions that are seem really obvious once they pop up and I've never had to deal with it. And so frequently I go around now and I uh, pose these spell ruling puzzles uh, to people. And okay. uh, we did this with Luke a couple weeks back. So if you're, if you're willing, I want to pose just a couple of what would Matt Finch's expectations be for a couple of critical spell rulings that we've had lately? Um, number one, um, a wizard, a magic user casts mirror image, um, which is one of our favorite, which is Paul's favorite defensive spell. And how could it not be? <laughs> Does it protect against directed spells like a whole person or a magic missile? Or does it not? Okay, so I don't get to just say there's not a magic missile spell in Swords and Wizardry, right? Yeah, that's magic missile. There's no mirror image spell, as I recall. There's no mirror Is there? Well, you're right, because they both came up in the supplement. You're, I mean, that's, that's legitimate, because they both came up in the first supplement. Okay, I think you dodged that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's a clever dodge, Matt! <laughs> Mirror, mirror, mirror image. That you took out one mirror image with the thing. No, but what is the question? Because I can answer that in terms of of advanced D and D. Uh, yeah. Does mirror image protect against targeted attacks like charm or hold or disintegrate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you're you're 
having to target a thing that you see. It's illusion magic, so it's it's which one you pick. Okay. And you've got and, and and since the the you don't get to say it's this one unless the DM's you know holding you know one through four cards and saying pick a card. It's just determined randomly whether or not you got the right one. So I would say that it would it would have that effect. Unless you so get, you're unless you're ruling you this you're, the right one you're, you're ruling this in by the by the first edition rules yes yeah okay even though I'm gonna I'm gonna make this extra difficult even though the first edition text for the mirror image spells that it protects against weapons I don't know let's take a look. <laughs> Gotta get the book out now. Rule oh fight. my goodness. Oh my Rule goodness. Right. Um, See, Dan, do... what? what is it? Are second you, level you, spell? I mean, is, is there, mirror image is second uh, level? Yeah. Mirror image. Is there an yeah. argument? Is there an argument here, Dan, that a, that a magic missile is a weapon? Can I make that argument? Well, there you go to the whole original <laughs> D and D thing because the, the very earliest version of original D and D, there was a suggestion that it was a physical missile that got shot, yeah, and yeah. it just acted yeah. it acted as magic um, for purposes of hitting creatures that were that were magical and could only be hit by magic weapons. Um, so you you could certainly make that argument. Um, it is a solid argument. I believe when we had Tim Cask on, he said that he had a week-long argument with Gary in which he got Gary to flip on that. Like Gary was very solidly, yes, you have to make an attack roll. And then Cask argued with him for a week, and that's how it flipped the other to, to automatic hits, is what Tim told us. So what, what, here's, the, what, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah. It doesn't say that it protects against weapons. It says when the image is struck by a weapon, magical or otherwise, it blinks out mm -hmm. of effect. Mm -hmm. um, it's not clear um, what, you know, I would go to, it is impossible for opponents to be certain which are phantasms and which is the actual magic user. So I'd focus on that part of the sentence. So I'm, it sounds like I'm coming in on the Tim Cask side of that argument um, that, that it would... Uh, you know, now the, you could you could certainly make the argument that if you cast charm person on it, that that won't cause one of the images to wink out, because it has to be struck by a weapon in order to wink out. But mm -hmm. I would say that it, uh, you know, the effect is it has duplicates, um, creates blurring distortion. You can't tell which one's the phantasm, which one's the actual uh, magic user, and uh, so I would certainly say that that could create. You know, basically a miss with a spell that's targeted because you're targeting one of the particular images, and that that's the way it's described as working. So I would definitely, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back, I'm gonna back Tim Cask on that one, um, <laughs> just so that everyone knows that that's not uh, hero worship. I will say that I disagree with Tim on the pronunciation of the boulette. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Finally, someone agreed with me on that. Oh my god, thank you, Matt. I, oh, oh my god i'm not the only person in the world holy smoke oh wow <laughs> i we, oh oh wow that was such a useful this is one of oh we had tim on right i took him to task i took him to task over that and we i that triggered him so we have a we have a 10 second yeah you task don't out. you don't want you don't want to do that discussion with Tim face to face because it really annoys him when people do it. But uh, you know, I do. I, I'm one of the people that thinks that language and pronunciation have rules of their own, regardless of who did the thing, and that therefore it's a bullet, regardless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, someone said it. Thank you. Oh wow. Okay. So big, uh, big Matt Tim. Uh, faction uh, fight here on Wandering DMs. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to ask, okay, so, and and you know what, you're, what you're saying for the ruling on mirror image is also the same as what Luke said when I asked him. Um, I So pulling out the, the, the player's handbook like Matt just did is exactly something I had to do in a game two weeks ago, and I got the call wrong, apparently, according to everybody else. So bad on me. I'm going to ask the other, the one other thing that I ask everybody that, again, I am the only person in the world that apparently ever ruled the way that I would expect. If uh, your party's fighting 
a golem, an iron golem. And your party wizard casts Conjure Elemental and uh, summons an elemental and sends it after the golem. Can the golem, uh, sorry, uh, can the elem, and, and of course, the golem, the main thing about golems is they're totally immune to all magic. Entirely, in original D, just entirely immune to all magic. Can the summoned elemental hit the golem? I would say yes. Damn it. <laughs> Absolutely on this Great. But it's magically summoned and it's immune to magic. So explain explain that to me. Because the creature itself, although it has a status as and here I'm going back to the um protection against evil spell. That you've got uh you know, summoned creatures have a status as a summoned creature that is independent from whether or not they are inherently magical because magical creatures can get through protection against evil summoned creatures cannot so i would say that therefore the fact that it is merely summoned does not make it actually magical wow wow you do have a law degree i you know i can tell <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's some good argument <laughs> Awesome. That's the, the thing way is I've had, pretty much I've had I've had players who had law degrees and you really amp up when you've got, you know, the players and the DMs all have law degrees. That's a whole new level of rules lawyer. <laughs> I love that. You know, once upon a time I kind of wanted to release like an indie game called Rules Lawyer where that was actually uh, the point of the game. But sure, I don't think I'm the right person to do that. Put little Easter eggs in the rules where if somebody notices that phrase, you know, if you use the phrase in the argument, then you get to move a different, yeah, that'd be cool. Nice. <laughs> Super nice. Super nice. So thanks for, so, and that's what you, you, you and, you and Luke, I, I need to hear this stuff because apparently sometimes I'm way out in left field with, uh, with some of my rulings. So I really appreciate uh, being able to run some of those things by you. So thank you. Thank you for helping to correct me. Did I agree with Luke on that one too? I guess I did. Yes. Look at watching your face yeah. when I said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the corollary I would pose to you, Dan, uh, is if we're playing first edition AD&D and someone uses Dralmuja's instant summons to summon forth uh, a, a magic sword, can they can they hit mm -hmm. the, the golem with that sword? Is that not the same as summoning a golem or summoning uh, an elemental? Uh, well, you threw, so, um, the Dramage's instant summons is instant and the magic of that is over once it's done. The, the, mm -hmm. the conjure elemental is, is ongoing and the, the wizard has to maintain a wizard, uh, you know, the, a mental control of it. So to me, uh, the, oh, the, the ongoing the thing is, is the control ongoing aspect. Control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and the other so thing, therefore, you know, I'll tell different the thing that really made me go off the deep end on this is the fact that uh the the to my understanding the first ever iron golem that was run by rob kuntz uh with gary playing mordenkainen as a player um uh, uh that that rob's iron golem uh gary tried to cast transmute rock to mud underneath it and it wouldn't even sink into magical mud uh mordenkainen summoned an afrit out of an afriti bottle and the Afrit couldn't affect the Iron Golem. So uh, reading that play report is kind of what put, partly what put me into this mental state of a wizard just can't do anything to a Golem whatsoever, but um, that's well, but uh, keep not in how mind, most people read the text. Keep in mind that it doesn't really matter. I mean, as long as you're consistent, there aren't any wrong answers about that stuff. It's just that your players are gonna log it for future use. And so that's why it's important to be consistent, but it's not like the game's broken one way or the other. There's room Super for reasonable DMs to disagree, and and no one's wrong. Great point. Great point. That's that's exactly <laughs> the perspective we should take. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You're so right. <laughs> uh, I, I hate to say it, but we're about at the end of the hour here. So um, I, I just wanted to uh, 
shoot over to you, Matt, and, and find out, is there is there anything about the um, revised edition of Swords and Wizardry here that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we get out to our fans? I guess it's worthwhile mentioning just because, you know, at the very beginning of the thing, I was saying, you know, all the older versions, you know, it's completely backward compatible. There's not very much being added to this one. There, at this point, there is a fair amount being added. It's still, of course, backward compatible, but we've, at this point, based on just discussions in the... Um, in the comments section and on Facebook and so on and so forth, we've we've added in uh, generating random castles, which is something you know for when you're using the wilderness encounter tables, um, which a lot of people wanted. We've added we've now added in morale rules, so all of the monsters have a morale number. Um, we've uh, uh, what else? We've added in the the percent in layer, which is important. A lot of this has to do with the wilderness encounter uh, scheme of things. Um, so there's. Uh, uh, there's now the percent in layer so that you can find out whether you actually stumbled on their layer or not. So there is quite a bit now of more new material than was originally advertised right back at the beginning of the Kickstarter because we realized we had about four empty pages to play with. And so we filled those up. Um, so that may or may not be worth uh, is probably not a buy or not buy decision for people, but there is a lot more new material in the book than we uh you know sort of suggest there is in the kickstarter page so we have a couple of um we had we had more than one as soon as you mentioned the percent in lair we had more than one of our commenters <laughs> saying well what about percent uh, whatever percent in, of liar i prefer and, that and i prefer that mechanic you, you want to hold up your copy of the book because you've got copies of the old books and I would have to reach down for mine. But the reason why it uh, talks about percent in liar is that there was a typo in the um, uh, Monsters and Treasure book, probably. Where, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I may have one that's got the. Here we go, Monsters and Treasure. So let me see if I can hold it up here. Dude, but there is a, a typo mm -hmm. yeah. on the. Here we go. Percent in. <laughs> I am not holding mine up very accurately to the camera. Uh, but it says percent in liar or percent liar. <laughs> percent in liar. And so a yeah, lot yeah. of people who came to these books very early on figured that that had to do with the monster's negotiating tactic rather than uh, the mm -hmm. likelihood of finding mm -hmm. it in its lair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, let's be reasonable. If a, D, if a DM wants to interpret that way, that can be very interesting. As long as you're consistent, there are no wrong answers. Yeah. <laughs> Before we uh, cut out, I, I also want to say one thing we didn't get to talk about is the fact that you have an alternate cover with art by my favorite classic D&D artist, Errol Otis. So I was pretty excited to see that that is uh, one of the options people can pick for their printed book. And the one last thing is that I saw uh, you and Susie got engaged the start of the month. So yes, we did. In the middle, in the middle congratulations. Of the Thank you. That's great. Excellent. Excellent. Congratulations. Um, folks, lo looking for the uh, Kickstarter link. Uh, it was posted in the chat at the start of the show. It is also available uh, in the show notes uh, in this, in the uh text description of the YouTube video. So go ahead and check that out. You've got a few days left here still uh, as of the time of recording this to uh, get in on the Swords and Wizardry complete revised Kickstarter. So uh, please it looks out. like we went up a couple hundred bucks over the course of the show too. So thank you, whoever it was that uh, pledged to the Kickstarter <laughs> during during the show. You actually took time to open a new internet tab. And uh, you know, so thank you very much. I think several of our patrons said they were doing that, so we're so so happy they could we could bring it to their attention. Let's get. I can't actually see the chat. The way this is set up, I can't see what people are posting in the chat. I rely on Dan and Paul to tell me. So, <laughs> and of course, uh, remember if you're new to the channel here as we wrap up, remember you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, uh, the Wandering DMs. We're on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok, and we have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there. If you prefer to listen to our shows in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Those files are available on our website at wanderingdms.com. Also through various podcast carriers, such as iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast. If you are listening to this right now on one of those other carriers and they provide an ability to do so, please rate and review our show there. Uh, that helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, a uh, huge thanks to our patrons who support the show monthly. Uh, if you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering 
you'll see our different tiers. Every single tier, even the $1 tier, gets you access to our Discord server where we continue to chat every Sunday for another hour or so. We'll be there in about 10 minutes. And I think we'll have Matt there as well. So we are looking forward to continuing that conversation, which is the best. <laughs> uh, I'll be back on Thursday night uh, with more of me playing through the uh, AD&D Gold Box games, Pool Radiance. And then the week after that, I'll be back with Dan Cullen for more Book of War Wargaming uh, with classic D&D Wargaming. And feel free to check out our, the one that we played on Thursday night uh, that's, that's up currently, which was a, a blast as always. And then uh, we will be back uh, other Sundays. So we'll be there. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and best of luck on the continuing of the Kickstarter. Thank you very much. Look forward to that. Uh, yeah, we're live Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. Let me see you then. Bye, everyone.